So we're going to continue uh, this morning in our E222 series. I hope you've been enjoying this, this series as much as I have been preparing it. Uh, I've really felt that the Lord has been speaking to me clearly about this uh, verse from Ephesians 2, uh, verse 22. Um, it's uh, just great to be getting into something that I feel that is so packed and has so much information and so much significance for us. Now, you may remember we started uh, on the 31st of October with the first part of the verse, which is, uh, in fact, I'll just, let me just tell you the whole verse. It's, in him, you also are being built together into a place for God to live by the Spirit. And so we started on the uh, 31st of October with in him, first of all, and we looked at um, all of those times in the New Testament where in him or in Christ get mentioned. And it's over 100 times, lots and lots of times in the New Testament. And we unpacked just one. Uh, and we had some volunteers on stage, and we looked at that. And then last week, uh, we looked at you also, and we discovered that Jesus is a you also Lord, and uh, he invites us to be included. He invites us to be part of his kingdom. Um, and uh, we talked about Gutman and his work with some of those uh, uh, you know, uh, disabled people who'd come back from World War II, and he said, no, you're not to just languish there doing nothing. I, I have a vision and a future for you. Uh, and it's a great illustration of the you also heart of God towards us, that we're not just to be languished and left behind, that God has something for us to do, and he has purpose and importance for us in our lives. Every single person uh, on the planet is included in the scope of, of God's amazing you also heart for us. So we looked at that last week, and th- uh, this morning uh, we're going to be looking at the, the third part uh, of this uh, amazing verse Um, which is our being built together. So in him, in Jesus, you also. And then part three is our being built together. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I'd like to open uh, with some uh, some sharing a story from the news that has just happened in the last, oh, I don't know, uh, seven, eight days, something like that. I think it all kicked off last Saturday. A report came into the news, into the BBC News, that a bloke had fallen inside a cave uh, in, in Wales, uh, in a mountain range called the Brecon Beacons. Um, and uh, this was a significant fall. He, he was a, uh, a guy called George, actually, I think. And uh, he, he was out with a, f- with a friend. They were experienced cavers. Uh, they were fit and well. Uh, uh, and uh, they went down into this, ca- into this cave system, and he slipped. And he's broken uh, a number of bones in his body, a couple of bones in his leg, and I think he's broken his jaw. So he had a number of quite serious injuries, although they were not life-threatening. The place where they were doing the caving um, is in the Brecon Beacons, and let me see if I can pronounce this for you in the Welsh. Um, it's, I think it's Ogoff Fenendu. Ogoff Fenendu, cave system, um, and it's around 20 miles north of the city of Swansea in Wales. And it's actually the second largest cave system in Wales, and it's one of the biggest cave systems uh, that you can explore. And it, for people who like caving, it's like a big feature on their agenda. Um, it's around about 43 miles long in total, with all of its different galleries and caverns and uh, potholes and waterfalls. And there are rivers roaring underground that you have to cross. Um, there's you know, stalactites and stalagmites, if you remember those from school. And it's just got an incredible thing. It's, it's an incredible thing to go on this journey uh, through this, uh, through this in- amazing cave. At its deepest point, it goes down nearly a thousand feet below the surface. It's a very deep cave, uh, you know, v- uh, very challenging uh, kind of uh, caving. It's, for the, it's not for your beginner type cavers at all. Uh, you have to be a little bit experienced in it. Um, 
In the Welsh, the name means cave of the Black Spring because there are all sorts of waterways running uh, underground. Now, uh, caving can be a very dangerous sport. Uh, you can obviously fall like this gent has. There can be rock slips. There can be, uh, you can slip it under the water. You can get uh, claustrophobia because you're having to squeeze yourself through those little holes. Um, you can get lost. You can get hypothermia. You know, it's riddled with risks, and yet people seem to still love going and doing it. I've got to say to you, the concept of squeezing into a tiny space with the, with the idea of thousands of tons of rock above me, um, I, I don't know what the appeal is, if I'm just really frank about that. Uh, now, maybe there's some of you sitting out there going, yeah, send me down a cave, but, you know, you go first and report back is kind of what I'm saying, yeah? Uh, I'll, I'll see how things go when you return. Um, uh, I did notice on the news something very kind of amused me a lot. The, one of the main entrances is, to this cave system is kind of about the height of Kev's guitar. It's kind of like here. And I kind of saw it in the news and thought, what? That's really small. And it's like, like a hobbit would go in there, you know. So it, it's kind of pretty unobtrusive on the surface, but it's like really enormous underground. So we have this guy down there. He slipped. He's called George. And uh, this, he's suffering from these multiple injuries. And there, there are a couple of problems, obviously, that come with this. For you to tr tr traverse a cave or to get through a cave system when you're able-bodied and well, um, if you imagine that something that might take an hour when you're in good, you know, your good fitness and you know, you know what you're doing, if you're in a stretcher, multiply that up to 10 hours. And so you are in a lot of difficulty. So, uh, so straight away, he's, in a, he's looking at a long time to get out. And then they get a stretcher to him. His friend calls the alarm, and they start mobilizing rescue teams uh, locally at first, and then more nationally as the severity of the situation becomes apparent. And then they get a stretcher to him. And then they realize the second problem, not just slowing things down because of carrying somebody on a stretcher, which is really hard through a cave system, they then realize that that little doorway and some of the passages that he's climbed in through were too small for him to get the stretcher back out of. And so what they're then having to do is kind of think, how do we get this guy out? And so they kind of think, okay, we're going to have to go out another way. It's got multiple entrances, but some of these entrances are literally miles and miles away underground in other parts of the mountainside. You know, it's a bit like Moria in Lord of the Rings, isn't it? It's like, where am I going to come out? Uh, and so uh, these guys make a decision and they go, right, we're going to have to carry you now from not through the hole that you came through, but we're now going to have to carry you out by another entrance. Uh, and so they make this plan. And what is so heartwarming about this story is that around about 300 people show up to help. Uh, so we're talking local cave rescue teams. We're talking uh, national caving people. We're talking uh, rescue teams from Scotland and, uh, and, and all over the country drive down and they descend on this place. And the place is filled with like, you know, four by fours and Land Rovers and people in gear. And um, so they start to build a team of, the, of these 300 people. Uh, and they start to take it in shifts because they have to port George out carefully, inch by inch, through all this maze of tunnels and this labyrinth of, uh, of networks and passages to get him out of, the, out of this situation. Um, it is all, it's only happened eight or nine days ago, and it's already got the record for the longest uh, like cave rescue in history, in British history. It's like 53 hours it's taken to get him out. Um, and, uh, but the teams work really well together. You know, there's like a lot of banter. Uh, there's teamwork and heartiness, and they take turns, and they do shifts, and they look out for each other. I found out when I was researching this story that uh, when you go caving, you have little kind of areas on your helmet where you can store chocolate. 
And I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds good, although the rest of it is not good. So the chocolate thing's a motivation, the caving thing isn't. So, um, but anyway, so they're, they're taking chocolate to each other, there's banter, there's chat, there's, there's interaction, and they work together as a team, and they get this guy out eventually to safety and off to hospital. Now, the reason that I've opened with this story this morning is because I think it's a great illustration from life of how church can be. It's a great illustration of life from, how, for, for, from life for how church can be. Uh, we are lost. We are stuck. There is nothing we can do in our own strength to be able to get ourselves out of where we are. And what we need is we need a team of healthy, safe, motivated people who know what they're doing and have experience to come and retrieve us from that place and bring us to a place of safety and rescue. And if you think about it, a healthy church does all of those kinds of things. And so this speaks into our section of our E222 verse today. In him, you also, are being built together. There's something that happens when a group of people who are pointed at Jesus are getting on with doing something that rescues someone else. And that other person then becomes the recipient of something that God is doing through that team of people. What I want you to notice in this, uh, in this passage, it's, it's an are being built ver- verb or word. So it's, it's passive. It's not something that this, if you think about it, George couldn't do anything to help himself. It had to be done to him. And all of us, in some sense or another, have this happen to us during the course of our faith. There is something that's happened in our journey where something has been done to us through God, through the Spirit, by Jesus, that has compelled us to say, I need rescue. I need to put my hand up in this meeting. I need to come and find you, Jesus, because I feel you're calling me. And he pulls us out of that, that place, that place of darkness, like the cave, and we become his followers. And we become his co-workers in helping others have the same experience. That is what our being built together is all about. So, uh, let's, uh, let's press on. In the Greek... In Ephesians 2.22, it is actually one word. Are being built together, four words in the English, one word in the Greek. Uh, Chloe did a a bit of German when she was in school uh, and went on an exchange trip to Germany. And she was telling me that in the German language, and some of you might be able to correct me on this, I'm sure, but in the German language, apparently, you can bolt words together. So you can put like four or five words together, and it makes a, a meaning that is very, very specific. Uh, that is helpful. Uh, and I did some kind of research on this uh, on Google, and uh, I think uh, one of the words, uh, I think, like the, f- the phrase, driving license check, three words in English, that's just one word in German. Who knew? No, not that that's very helpful, but I'm giving you an illustration, okay? So in the original Greek, the word for are being built together is just one word, and it's this. It's sunoikodomio. Sunoikodomio. And that's made up of three, three smaller Greek words run together. And the first one of those is sun, which means with. The second is oikos, which means house. And it, they take the S off, the sigma off, and they turn it into oiko. But it means house. Just hands up here, anybody who knows Erdington well in Birmingham, the district of Erdington. Anyone from Erdington at all? Just a few people might know Erdington. There's a church there called oikos. 
there's actually a church called Oikos. And that means house. So when they say Oikos church, they're meaning house church, because that comes straight from the Greek. Um, and then the third word is domio, which means to build. So the word we're looking at from, for, from, sorry, uh, from E22 today literally means to build a house with. It can also mean figuratively to build someone up. So, for instance, if I build you up, I'm leaving you feeling encouraged or stronger. So the word can mean all the constituent parts of a house that are being put together, but it can also mean that you are being encouraged by me because I bring you strength and confidence and reassurance and encouragement and and help. And so you can be being built up in that way. And that word means both of those things. What I want to say this morning is that I think that this is a work done to us more than we do ourselves. This is something that God brings to us and does through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and he builds us up more than, it, than we are responsible for it ourselves. Okay? I want to take you back into the Bible to a story, um, uh, the Tower of Babel story in Genesis. Uh, now, you may remember that story, that there were lots and lots of people, and they said, let's all team up together, let's make loads of bricks, let's make a massive tower that reaches to the heavens. And God kind of looked down from heaven, and he kind of thought, I can see where this is going, and it's not going in a good way. It's not going to a good place. Now, God is fine with industry. God is fine with teamwork. God is fine with common aims. But he's not fine with us constructing something that is, that is essentially us trying to get to heaven. That is us building something in our own strength that doesn't involve him. He is a God who wants to be the architect of what he is building through his church. And so he looks down at the Tower of Babel and he says, no, that's, that's an ungodly thing and I'm going to scatter that. I'm going to cause them to all speak different kinds of languages um, and we're going to kind of break that up because they need a dependence upon me to build a spiritual uh, journey towards me. It can't be something that they do in their own strength. Religion is when you decide through your own striving and effort to kind of try and climb your way up to God. And God doesn't want that. He sends Jesus to actually win us back from the enemy through the work that Jesus does on the cross, um, and we just have to receive it. It's a receive and believe kind of religion, if you like, or or a faith. It's not a religion, it's it's a faith. So the Tower of Babel is a picture of effort being made towards building towards God in the human, but God says, no, that needs to stop, and I will build my church. So Jesus uh, has this conversation with Peter, doesn't he? And Peter kind of realizes who Jesus is. And he says, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And Paul, in Ephesians 2.22, basically says, in him, Jesus, you also are being built together into a place for God to live by the Spirit. And all three members of God are involved in that process. And it's essentially a passive one. Now, I don't mean passive in a bad way where we're sitting back. I think there's a huge amount of partnering to do with God in this. But the core driver of what God is trying to do is he's trying to build us himself. And as we're obedient, as we follow the Spirit, as we lean into who he is, he then shapes us and fashions us. So we are being built together. So it's not an us activity trying to get to God. It's God's activity trying to fashion us. Something that I notice about the the birth of the church and the birth of Jesus is that it's an activity of the Holy Spirit. So where we had the Tower of Babel and people trying to create something that gets them towards God, 
What Luke does in the beginning of Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, is he talks about how the Holy Spirit births something. So in Luke 1 and 2, we have the birth of Jesus, which is created by uh, the, uh, the miraculous uh, you know, pregnancy of Mary, isn't it? The Holy Spirit comes and do, does that as a miracle, and he births Jesus in a miraculous way, and it's the Holy Spirit that does it. And that's in Luke 1 and 2. And then in Acts 1 and 2, we don't have the birth of Jesus, we have the birth of the church. And that's, that's created as a miraculous thing by the work of the Spirit, birthing something in a group of people who are waiting on Jesus. And I want you to notice something uh, pretty cool here, is that the Tower of Babel actually gets undone at Pentecost. Just think about that for a moment. So we all had one language at the Tower of Babel. God came down and he kind of said, no, you're doing an ungodly thing here. We'll scatter this around. We'll give you different languages so that you don't really understand each other. But what he does in Acts chapter 1 and 2 is he sends the Spirit and he brings a unity that's forged by the Spirit and we start understanding some of our languages again through the praise that is given through tongues. Can you see the reversal that has happened there? And so God upends our human efforts to get to him and he sends the Spirit, and it's the Spirit's work that is doing this work to bring us together in what he calls the church. I'm kind of giving you quite technical preaching today. Are you okay with this? Are you following me so far? Yeah? Okay. What, what I think happens is, here's the journey. A person, if we take a typical person who knows nothing about Jesus, is lost and marooned like George was in his cave earlier this week. The Spirit is building something all the time in people that causes them to collect together around the person of Jesus, and he is building them to become a body uh, that, that is called the church. That body then is used by God, used by the Spirit, and used by Jesus to reach people who are lost. They then come and join that body, and they themselves become more healthy, they become, more, they become found, they are saved. And they become co-workers with Jesus in Jesus' efforts and work at building the church. You know, Jesus is the head foreman of the global building site called the church, yeah? And we are all his co-workers on that massive building site. That's how this works. So I hope you're beginning to get that picture uh, as we go through. I want to jump now into a, a great story um, from a time when Jesus did something that illustrates brilliantly uh, what Paul is on about as he describes us being built together. Uh, jump with me to Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through to 12. And uh, uh, please just uh, follow that along in your version app or perhaps in your Bible. Uh, just open that up and have a look. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This story is an excellent story of our being built together. It's a fantastic illustration of what Paul is trying to say from the middle of this verse in Ephesians. Uh, I mean, you could take the idea of building the church so many different ways from the New Testament, but this particular story really stood out to me as one of the best stories to illustrate what Paul means when he means that people are being built. Um, because there's a man, on a, 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 he's a paralytic on a mat, he can't do anything, he's a bit like George down the mine, sorry, down the, down the cave system, he can't do anything for himself, but somehow the action of Jesus uh, and the impetus of the friends rescues him and brings him through. So let's read that together. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he, that's Jesus, was at home. 
Uh, So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. Uh, They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Uh, Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But so that you know, may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. And as a result, they were all astonished and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So just like the man who was uh, injured and trapped in that cave system in Wales, the paralytic man in this story was completely unable to help himself. Um, uh, He doesn't even say anything in this story. Did you spot that? As it goes through, he's just completely quiet. He doesn't say a single word. Not a bean. Not, Not anything. Now, he might have said something there, but Mark doesn't record it. He's completely passive in this story. And this is one of the reasons I picked this story out. Uh, And uh, he's got, however, he's got four determined friends. Who needs four determined friends in their life? Yeah, we need determined friends in our lives, don't we? Who pick us up when we are kind of completely lost and out of it. Who drag us to church and say, now come on. Thanks, Chloe. Cheers. Uh, we We need our four friends, don't we? We need more than that. We need lots and lots of friends to help us out. I think that this is a story of somebody receiving input in a huge way, in a way that they're not able to do for themselves, so that it restores them to being uh, included, uh, saved, and healed. And that there's, there's nothing he does to do it for himself, and it's all done for him by a combination of Jesus and his friends. Uh, and uh, this man's friends do this for him. Uh, so I just want to take you through uh, what, this, uh, what this looks like. Um, I think that when these two things mesh together, when Jesus meshes together with people doing great things with Jesus and co-working with him, that's when great events in which are being built to, together happen the best. Are you, are you spotting that? Are you seeing this link? So there's, there's a load of people who need loads of help. There's a load of people who are uh, being motivated and and, uh, inspired by Jesus to to do great things. And then there's Jesus at the center of it who is kind of driving the whole thing along and making church happen. So let's go through and understand some of the things that the four friends do together. Number one, and you'll see these in your notes. Number one, they are persuasive. They ask their friends to trust them and they allow, to allow him to, give them, uh, to you know, give them a chance to get to Jesus with him. Now, that invo- imagine the scene a moment. These four guys arrive, the paralytic's lying on his mat. They say to him, uh, we've heard Jesus is in town. You know, you need to come and, uh, come, and, come and get some ministry from this guy. Now, I don't, know if the, I don't know if the paralytic was Mr. Grumpy or if he was an absolute treasure. We, that, the story doesn't tell us that, does it? 
Um, but he clearly allows his friends to carry him through the streets to Jesus' house, uh, where the ministry is happening. Uh, so, the, number one, the friends are persuasive. Number two, they are hardworking. Uh, they get a stretcher and they carry their friends to Jesus. Has anyone here ever carried a stretcher for a significant distance? It is hard work. It's kind of intellectually not hard, but it's hard physical work. Uh, one time I um, uh, was involved in something called the um, Multiple Sclerosis Challenge. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much. Um, called the Multiple Sclerosis Challenge for a friend of mine called Claire. And the idea behind that was that we had to uh, get Claire around uh, an assault course in the mountains in her wheelchair. Uh, now, this was not a short assault course. This was a long assault course, and it involved woods and rivers and uh, a lot of mud as well, as I seem to remember. Uh, and it was really hard. You know, Claire, I'm really sorry if you're watching, uh, but, you know, this was like trying to get a grand piano up a fire escape. This was really difficult. This was not an easy job. And we did get her round, and we, uh, you know, we got there in the end. Um, it was an awkward day because uh, it was just a few, few kind of guys like me from church, you know, a few monks who went, yeah, we'll give this a go. Um, but there was like loads of soldiers there. And, uh, you know, like there was a team of firemen there. And they, they do this kind of stuff for a living. And I'm like, that's not fair. You know, and we're trying to, trying to catch up with these guys, and they did really well, and we didn't do a very good time. But hey, we got her round. So number two is uh, they work hard. Number three, they are overcomers. Um, they, uh, they get to Jesus' house, and they, they don't allow themselves to be put off by what they find. Who here identifies with, you start out in something, you seem like you're doing well, and then suddenly there's something discouraging up ahead. And you feel like, oh, no, that's not right. I didn't want that to happen. That's, that's, that's dismaying. What on earth's going on now? Anyone ever identify with that? Anyone feel that ever at all? Yeah? Thanks, Kev. You felt it. I have. Nobody else here has, but that's cool. So, yeah, you're pushing through something. You arrive at a situation, and suddenly it looks a whole lot more depressing than you really first thought. That is not a great feeling, is it? But these guys decided, no, it's time to be overcomers. We're going to continue and we're going to overcome. We see this crowd. We can't get to Jesus, but we're not going to let us be stopped by that. We're going to keep on pressing in. We're going to keep on pushing forward. Uh, number five uh, is, sorry, number four, these guys come up with a drastic solution that puts someone's healing more important than Jesus' house. Now, I mean, I've carefully checked the translation. I actually think Jesus was at home in Capernaum. That's what it says in the text. Now, it could be at home in the city, I guess, but it sounds to me like he was in his own house. And these guys come to the house, and there's a huge crowd there, and they just start taking apart his roof. I mean, it's pretty rude, isn't it? Like, you know, Jesus' own home, but what I love about the story is Jesus is cool with it. He's kind of like, what are you guys doing? And, you know... They are very, very uh, inventive, aren't they, these guys? And they come up with a solution that maybe you and I wouldn't have come up with, and they get their friend to Jesus because they're inventive. Um, you know, they, they want to uh, uh, solve the problem that they find. Uh, I, I don't know how it went. If it was Jesus' house, I really don't know how that conversation went with Mary, his mother, afterwards. I imagine it was pretty awkward. Um, it, w- it would have been, you know, like, I'm really, really sorry, Mary, but I just kind of ha- had to let these guys in, and I'll repair the hole later. 
You know, um, I had to do a healing through the ceiling. You know, maybe it was something like that. And Mary was like, yeah, whatever. You know, you fix it, son, really quick. Number five, uh, they find a means of lowering their friend uh, through to Jesus using some ropes. And so I would say that shows that they were careful. They were careful friends. I don't know if you've ever had to lower somebody on a stretcher, but you have to keep all four corners of that just right. Otherwise, your mate is going to slip off. You know, these guys in this cave system in Wales, they're going to have to be really careful getting George, this guy that's been recovered, back through all of those passageways and across all those gaps and around all those boulders and across those rivers, just right without letting that stretcher slip and letting him fall in. You know, when, if, you're, if you've got a friend on a stretcher and you let them slip off, I'm, I'm telling you now, that's awkward for the friendship. All right, that is going to be very difficult for you, and you're going to have to do some repair on that later. So they were careful. Uh, number six, they had faith for their paralyzed friend. They were faith-filled friends. It says in this story that Jesus saw their faith. I love that phrase. That tells me that all of us in this room, if we've got faith for someone else, Jesus notices that and he responds. I absolutely love that. That means we can have faith for our friends. That means we can have faith for other people, not just for ourselves. And Jesus is highly alert to that. And he's looking for it. That's a great quality to have in a friend. And then lastly, they were open-hearted because they celebrated with everybody at the end. There was no cynicism or hardness of heart or grumpiness or, oh, yeah, well, we did that. That wasn't Jesus. You know, it wasn't like that. They were just really glad to see something good for their friend and the breakthrough that he had. And you've got to admit, you know, lying on a mat, you're looking at a ceiling a lot, aren't you? And so for him to have a breakthrough through a ceiling is a lovely thing. That's just a celebration moment for those friends, isn't it? Really, really lovely. So... The friends we need, persuasive, hard-working, overcoming, problem-solving, careful, faith-filled, open-hearted. You need friends like that? Yeah, I do. I'd love some friends like that. Come on. Right, let's jump in and see what Jesus uh, does in this story. There's a few things he does. You find him, number one, he's on assignment. Jesus is busy. He's already preaching the word, and he's got a massive crowd going. Uh, Jesus is not kind of lolling in his hammock. He is absolutely building the kingdom of God. Uh, and the whole house is rammed with people who want to hear from him and to, and to have some of his, his words and his teaching and his touch. Um, the second thing is that it seems to me that Jesus is not too fussed about us drastically arranging his house in order for us to get people to him. Now that's a message for church, I think. Let's rearrange church and we can do it quite drastically provided we're getting people to Jesus. Yeah? That's a really important point. You know, sometimes we're so kind of safe and tiptoeing around how church needs to be. But remember, church is all about getting people to Jesus. And so don't make church the idol here. It's Jesus worship that we're doing here. It's not about making church beautiful or, or, you know, uh, making it perfect. It's about let's get people to Jesus. Now, I'm all for nice chairs and a decent lighting set up and a live stream, sure. But if that's getting the way, in the way and becoming the main goal, then we've lost some, something there. And, and I think this story tells us that Jesus is more interested in doing a healing than he's worried about his own house. Very, very important point to hear there from, from Jesus' example. Number three, uh, it says that uh, Jesus is very alert for signs of faith. We've touched on this. The faith, the faith of the friends is high. Jesus is looking for our faith. He's looking for those moments when we gather together, when we pray together. He's looking for those times where we take a chance on Jesus. 
Have you ever prayed those prayers where you absolutely need Jesus to come through for you because there's nothing else going to happen? You ever prayed that? Jesus loves those kinds of prayers. He loves those kinds of actions. He loves that kind of attitude. When a few people get together and go, what can happen in Jesus? Fourthly, if you notice really carefully in this story, uh, the word son is the first thing that Jesus says when he sees this stretcher being lowered through the roof. Son, your sins are forgiven. Son is so important. Son says, you belong. Son says, you are included in, in my kingdom. Son says, you are my brother. You were created by God in his image, and you belong. You are a son. You are not an outcast. You are not defined by your paralysis. You belong. You matter. In fact, it's a you also statement, which we talked on last week. Son. What you have to understand is the Jews would have treated this as evidence of sin in the paralytic's life. They would have said, well, you must have sinned to get like this. To have this paralysis, you must have done something wrong, or perhaps your grandparents did something wrong. Something's not right. You've not been holy enough, and so you're now paralyzed, and therefore you're also unclean, and we're not going to have too much to do with you. And Jesus turns that around, and he says, son. We need to hear that, don't we? Today, this morning, you and I need to hear son, daughter, from Jesus himself. And this story reassures reassures us that that is what's on Jesus' hearts when he looks at us. We sang before we came up for the, the talky bit and the message, just one look. I reckon as the dust came down on Jesus' head as they broke his roof open, he took a look at that guy and he said, son, and something connected. Amen, Amen to that. Number five, Jesus forgives the paralyzed man's sins. Now, in the scale of priorities in a situation, we might be very, very sick, but first we need our sins forgiven because we may get taken to heaven through our sickness or because of our sickness or something may come along which, which isn't kind of quite fully resolved in our bodies, but we, you know what? Jesus is concerned for the resolution of what's going on in our spirits first, and we need to be connected to God first, and we need to have his forgiveness first, and so he forgives the paralyzed man first. So he, 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 he forgives his sins and sets him right with God. And that's what Jesus always wants to do for us. And he's the only person in the whole history of time who has the authority to do that. Number six, uh, Jesus discerns people's thoughts in the room without them even saying anything. So those clerics and those teachers of the law sitting there, they're kind of like, oh, you know, I'm not sure that I'm very happy with you saying these things, Jesus. But they're saying it in their hearts, and Jesus knows it, and he detects it. Now, that's both a good thing and a scary thing. It's a good thing that Jesus understands what's going on in our hearts, but it's also a scary thing because he knows what's going on in our hearts. Yeah? So that means that when we come to church or wherever we are around the city or in our lives, Jesus is kind of knowing what's going on in our hearts and what is there there is what I want to ask us with and challenge us with. Kev, do you want to come on back? Uh, And Isaac as well. I know that you guys are going to lead us in some worship in a minute. Thank you. Jesus works out in his spirit what they're thinking. Number seven, he says this, Jesus says this, um, he links the seen with the unseen. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that it's very difficult for someone to, to see forgiveness. 
So, for instance, if I forgive Dami here, one of our elders, just down the front, sorry to pick you out, Dami, but if I forgive Dami, um, we can't see that forgiveness in Dami's heart. It's not visibly possible, you know, it's not, you can't actually see it. Now, Dami might feel that he's forgiven, and I don't, certainly don't have the authority from God to forgive Dami. Well, I can forgive Dami from maybe between us, if there's a wrong between us, but I don't have the authority to do godly forgiveness upon him from God. Only Jesus can do that. But that's invisible. Now, Dami might feel it, and it's not that it's not real, because it is real, but no one can see that going on in his heart. And so Jesus does this very clever thing where he says, I'm going to link the unseen with the seen. And I'm going to do a miracle of healing so that as you see the miracle of healing, which you can see, therefore you can trust the miracle of forgiveness that you can't. That's a brilliant thing that Jesus does to overcome our unbelief, doesn't it? It, Isn't it? Jesus overcomes our unbelief by giving us something visible as a signpost to something that's invisible. And so he says this uh, amazing thing, doesn't he? Just, uh, I think it's, so that you may believe that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And so the link is, wow, the man gets up and walk, therefore we have no problem with the forgiveness. That's what Jesus is doing in this. And so he links the seen with the unseen. Number eight, of course, Jesus also stands in prophetic authority straight from Daniel chapter seven, where the Ancient of Days has kind of nominated this being called the son of man who has all authority and dominion and kingship over the earth and heaven and it's Jesus and Jesus references it right here in this episode so we know who we're dealing with here we're dealing with the with the with the lord of lords and the king of kings the king Jesus uh, king Jesus himself and then number nine and last of all and we're going to sing in just a moment why don't you stand BCC Uh, We're going to sing in just a second. But number nine, and finally, of what Jesus does in this amazing story, is he heals the man. The man receives healing. He is able to get up from his mat. And the only thing in the whole story that the man has to do is to test his muscles in faith. He does nothing else. Just like poor George, who got stuck down the cave system in Wales, did nothing to be pulled out. But 300 people went after him to rescue him out. And just like, just like that story, the church is people pulling people out of some terrible scrapes and putting them back together because in him, you also are being built together. God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit working through people are pulling you out of where you are and putting you in the right place where you're included. You're a son or you're a daughter. You're saved. You're set right with God and you're healed. Amen? Let's sing, and I'm going to suggest some responses to you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Isaac. There are three things that I think we can do to be people who help with that process of building together number number one is have faith for your friends have faith for your friends don't just have faith for yourself have faith for them that they will meet with Jesus that Jesus will do great things for them be praying for them be persuading them to come to church Um, be speaking into their lives have faith for your friends in the same way that these four guys had faith for their their paralyzed friend that Jesus could do something for him and of course he does 
And Jesus loves it when we have faith for our friends, not just for us. And then the second thing I would say, in addition to having faith for our friends, is start ordinary. Just start with the ordinary asks. You know, like sometimes we look at ministries and we go, wow, how did they do that? That's amazing. And I could never operate at that level. But this story teaches us that sometimes in building the kingdom, it's picking up a stretcher handle and just walking with a stretcher for a bit. And that's it. That's all that God's asking you to do. And so what is it that you need to see in your life that just needs ordinary help? Start there. Because sometimes we can get so carried away into the supernatural, we stop being useful in the, in the, in the normal. Start with the ordinary. And that might look like, hey, can you come and help me on cameras at church? Hey, can you pray for my friend? Hey, I'm really struggling at the moment. Will you just sit with me for a bit? What are the requests around you in your world that are just ordinary, that God is prompting you to respond to in an ordinary way? And then the third thing is, when resistance or dismay comes while you're doing the ordinary, then it's time to dig deep and do the extraordinary. So you imagine these guys with their stretcher and they're doing the ordinary thing and they see, then they see the crowd and then they start to think, how on earth can we get this man to Jesus? That's when the extraordinary thing happened. That's when the decision was taken to go the extra mile and to dismantle Jesus' roof and do the crazy thing, which I think is the reason why this story makes it into Mark's gospel at all. So have faith for your friends. Do the ordinary thing. And then if resistance or dismay happens, do the extraordinary thing. I'm going to pray over you, BCC, uh, as we finish, and as we finish on our live streams as well. Uh, let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this amazing verse from Ephesians 2.22. I thank you that we can be in you and in Christ. I thank you that your heart towards us is, is that you see us as you also, that we're included in your kingdom, that you call us son or you call us daughter. And I pray that you'd inspire us to be a kind of people that co-work with you, Jesus, to build other people, to reach out to those that are lost and can't help themselves to take risks for other people, to do radical stuff for you. Help us to be a you-are-being-built kind of church, Lord Jesus, today. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. BCC, have a fantastic rest of your day. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And uh, we'll see you again really soon. Take care. God bless.